You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. I'll be reading the teaching text today. Today's teaching text comes from, hold on, no, uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 12 through 15. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to copy Patrick this week. I usually stand. But you know what? Why not, right? So. Today we're continuing our series entitled A Living Gospel. It's this kind of exploration about what does it mean for the gospel not to be simply this news that's proclaimed, but this thing that's active and alive and working in the world. And so I thought I'd begin our, 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 our teaching today just kind of recapping and kind of just outlining for us again what the gospel is, it's, it's, a, it's a loaded term. And for some of us, if we're like new to Christianity, new to faith, new to this whole thing about Jesus, then this term maybe has no meaning for us. Maybe we hear it preached about a lot and talked about a lot, but we actually don't have a definition for it. And for some of us, you've grown up in church, you've been around this thing a lot, and you may have an understanding of what the gospel is, or think you do, or, or maybe you're a little fuzzy on those details. And so... When we talk about a living gospel, we first have to realize the, the origin of the word gospel is, is from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. And it was very common, actually, for this news to be ascribed to, to, to Roman emperors. It's actually when, a, when someone like Caesar would conquer a city or, or, or do something great for the empire, heralds will go out into the world, into the Roman world, and, and herald the good news. When, when, it, when in Caesar, when a new Caesar came to power, there was heralds that would go out to proclaim that there's good news that a new Caesar now sits on the throne of Rome. And so the, the term gospel is inherently in the Roman world connected to the ar- arrival of king or leadership and power. And so when the gospel writers use the term gospel in the context of the story of Jesus, the gospel is the pronouncement of God's rule and reign coming to bear on the world through Jesus and the arrival of his kingdom. And so when we read the term gospel, we have to picture is the arrival of the kingdom of God, the arrival of God's power and justice and goodness breaking in on a broken world to bring healing and wholeness and peace. And the gospel authors connect this to the person of Jesus, that Jesus himself comes to proclaim the gospel of God or the gospel of the kingdom. And that gospel centered around himself, that he was the the forerunner, the foretaste, the the herald, bringing in the kingdom, his reign, his glory, his power through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. But the the story of the gospel, the, the, the good news that God's rule and reign was breaking in on the world is directly connected to the Jewish story. In the Old Testament, the arrival of the Messiah was the arrival of shalom for the world. Shalom is, as as Patrick has mentioned before, I think a bit last week as well, that shalom is the idea of wholeness, peace, that 
In a disordered world, where things are in disordered relation to one another, shalom sets those relations right. Our relationships to ourselves, our relationship to each other, to creation, and ultimately to God. And so when when a Jewish audience in first century Palestine heard the announcement of the gospel, they were anticipating the shalom, the, the peace, the wholeness the kingdom of God would bring. And what we have to then remember then is that this gospel was not just about political wholeness. It wasn't simply about, was simply about making Israel as a nation whole, but actually the gospel of God comes to make both the, the human soul whole and the human world whole. And Jesus is part of Jesus' ministry and mission. It's why if you read through the gospel narratives, Jesus is healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's casting out demons. Why? These are in-breakings of the gospel. Jesus making broken things whole. And today, we're going to focus on how the gospel heals relationships, brings wholeness to people in conflict with one another, people stratified along ethnic, social, economic divides. What does the gospel have to say to that? And that's why we turn to today's teaching text, which you must be thinking like, hey, what, do that li- what does that list of names have to do with relational wholeness? Well, for some context, if you're unfamiliar with the story of the Old Testament, then the number 12 means nothing to you. You know, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles could be inconsequential. But again, for, for a Jewish audience in the first century, they knew exactly what Jesus was doing. You have 12 apostles for the 12 tribes of Israel. And what Luke is doing, he's setting up Jesus as this new Moses, this this new person who's going to come and take the remnant of faithful Israel, those who are faithful to Messiah, and continue God's kingdom project through the people of Israel. But this new Israel, this this reconstitution, this, this faithful remnant's not going to be like the old. It's going to be made up of people from all different walks of life, all different social, economic backgrounds. It's it's eventually going to include the Gentiles and people from all over the Roman world. It's eventually going to look like the church, the people of God, where from every walk of life we sit around the Lord's table. And so Jesus calls these 12 men together, names them apostles. And you would think that if Jesus was really smart, he'd get a bunch of people who would act and agree with each other. You know, it, you get the team building going, you know? But that's not the case. See, in this text, we're introduced to two apostles who will serve as our kind of teaching today. We're introduced to Matthew, who was the tax collector, and Simon, known as the zealot. Now, a bit on tax collectors in the ancient Roman world. For, especially for Luke, tax collectors served as the archetypal example of a sinner, people beyond salvation. Jewish religious leaders particularly despised tax collectors. They regarded them as ceremonially unclean, and they were actually excluded from religious activities connected to the temple. See, tax collectors in the ancient Roman world, they earned their profit by demanding a higher tax from the people than was actually due. And so for a Jewish man to become a tax collector was to be in bed with the Roman oppressor, to sell out your countrymen for a payday. That was Matthew. Matthew was a man who turned his back on his people for money. He was a man who had betrayed not only his people, but also his God by allying himself with Rome. And yet, this is a man Jesus calls to follow him and makes an apostle. And if that's not bad enough, Jesus calls Simon the Zealot. See, the term zealot likely referred to an extremist political party, an organized group of revolutionaries who wanted to oppose Roman rule with violence. These were men who were zealous for the independence of Israel, freedom from Roman oppression, and were willing to carry out acts of violence to achieve it. 
Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, this was described as an independent political resistance group. And not only were they zealous to overthrow Rome, but they were also zealous for the teachings and traditions of Israel. They were zealous for the Torah. They were religious extremists, adhering to extreme versions of Torah adherence, obeying the law of Moses, and most of all, vying for an independent Israel, independent of Roman rule. And so Jesus decides to call these two men into the work of ministry together. Imagine with me for a moment the, 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 the binary divisions we have today in our society. And we sadly live in a world where, you know, where we have, we have split the world into the good and the bad. And the good and the bad is dependent on your per- political persuasion, dependent on where you stand socially. And so we have these oversimplified binary divides in the world. Imagine those, think in your mind, I don't need to give too many examples because they're pretty easy to come up with. And imagine Jesus coming today and calling those people together to serve and live and work and follow him. It seems to me that inherent to Jesus' mission is the healing of broken relationships. Matthew and Simon probably hated each other in the beginning. Remember, political revolutionary, Roman sellout. Someone who abused his power for wealth and someone who had, was a, str- a strict religious man. I love, would love to use my sanctified imagination. When, when, when Jesus sent out the disciples two by two to go out and minister, I would love to imagine he sent Simon and Matthew together. <laughs> Just to teach them something. Just to show them that... This gospel is not just about you being right with God. It's about you being right with even the person you might deem an enemy. A person who might have hurt you. A person you might be in contention with. And Jesus doesn't do it by asking them to to kind of embrace some sort of false sense of unity where they forget their disagreements. Remember, the invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to teaching and relationship. And I am pretty sure the conversation came up. Who was right? who was wrong, and both of them sitting in front of Jesus, hashing it out, both of them realizing there's more, more to the story than they realize, and that maybe their binary divisions of the world are more complicated than that, and that those things actually are the things that we need to bring to Jesus. See, the idea of relational wholeness is not just dismissing and calling for false senses of unity, but actually to confront the tensions and to bring them to the foot of Jesus and to hash it out there. The gospel calls us to stare our neighbor in the eye, the neighbor we disagree with, the neighbor we have tension with, and Jesus himself calls him to see them as brother as sister, to see them as someone who's also an heir to the kingdom. The question is, how does Jesus do that? How does the gospel work in us to seemingly bring people on different sides or or people in tension with one another, whether it's tension that's born out of political tension or, or, or economic tension or, or, or racial tension or, or just simply the tension that comes with being in relationship to people, our capacity to hurt and harm one another, our capacity to be selfish and just take advantage of the other, our capacity to misunderstand and our capacity to unknowingly hurt each other. What does the, how does the gospel enter in and, and bring us together to the foot of Jesus? And for that, I'm not going to give you that answer, but I'm actually going to invite um, Patrick and Catherine up to share their story. So guys, come on up. told me about this. I don't know how this works. Okay. Uh, okay. So, yeah. So, this is the part where we kind of just give a story. I think I'm buzzing here. So, let me 
Uh, so this is, yeah, the time where we just kind of use stories. What does this look like, relational healing? Well, you can't have relational healing without relational conflict. And oftentimes, relational conflict is birthed out of individual conflict. And that's like a part of our story. So uh, for what we're talking about today, it actually starts way before I even knew Catherine. See, I, I moved to New York uh, 10 years ago this year. And uh, I was at that time a professional photographer and had been for some odd years. And uh, just by the nature of my work and um, how this world works in my profession and in, you know, where I was, I didn't have a lot of people of color uh, around me. And so a lot of the people just through the schools that I went to and through the professions and through life um, were honestly just like, white, <laughs> and, uh, and that's fine, that, that's just the way it worked out uh, in some ways. Um, but it started to kind of like bother me, if I'm honest. Uh, I feel kind of like, I guess, Matthew, uh, the tax collector, where I was wondering if I had become like a sellout, you know? And, um, and it was kind of this like nagging thought that that was kind of in and, and actually uh when we started dating uh before we started dating so uh i've always been like an equal opportunity dater you know um <laughs> and, thank you yes so, uh, and uh but but this is the rise of like online dating and i had actually set my profile because i had i had been in a couple of relationships uh with uh you know with women who didn't look like me. And, uh, and I was kind of just like, you know what? I think I'm gonna take a break from that. And uh, <laughs> somehow, and technically Catherine's like half Spanish, and so somehow the algorithm got confused and uh, we got matched. And so we ended up on this date and then I ended up liking her. And, uh, and then I ended up really liking her. And then, you know, we had to work through some like, family stuff around race, and it got a little complicated, but I persevered. And then we got engaged, and then uh, it came time for us to, like, plan for our wedding. And then this is where, like, things really started to ramp up in me, because as we were planning our wedding, in particular as we were planning our wedding party, and I was thinking about the men that were just closest in my life that I would want to stand beside me, um, None of them looked like me. Yeah, that was, I don't know why that was so hard. I, I do now, actually. I did. Again, it just felt like, it's not that I didn't love the men that were there. They, I, I don't have any regret or remorse over those relationships at all. Um, they were all dear to me, but it, it communicated something to me, like where, where were my people, people who could identify with the way that I grew up, people who know how to play spades, you know? Uh, <laughs> and so I just felt, I felt ashamed. And I, honestly, I felt ashamed. And, and I felt like, gosh, I'm going to stand up on this wedding day and all my family um, are going to come and, and they're going to see that like, gosh, there's, I, don't, I don't have like a black guy that's standing next to me. And I was really conflicted. And so... We persevered, the day came, and, uh, and we got married, but, but this really started, it was like this insidious gnawing inside of me. And we got married in February of 2016. Fast forward to July, uh, July 4th, 2016, which was the one year anniversary of when we got engaged. And so there was just, you know, what should be like a, a happy time of reflecting quickly kind of actually became a real uh, devastating time for me internally because July 5th uh, of 2016, Alton Sterling, uh, who was just like a CD man in Louisiana, he gets murdered by, uh, you know, police officers. And I know, I've been to, a, like, I know a lot of CD guys just selling CDs in barbershops. And to see him get murdered, like, it really harmed me. And, and she didn't quite understand. And then on July 6th, Philando Castile, uh, who was just a, a guy with his daughter and his girlfriend uh, in a regular traffic stop, ends up getting murdered. And in front of his three, four-year-old daughter, 
And uh, it's like, I don't know these people, but I knew these people. You know what I'm saying? And I have found myself in this place where I was at, I was in these communities where no one was grieving like I was grieving. And that's okay, but then it's kind of not okay, if that makes any sense. Like, and then this person that's so closest to me also didn't understand and was kind of unaffected. And it just felt like, I can't describe what that kind of loneliness feels like. Um, but it's not fun. <laughs> and it puts you in conflict and tension. And so uh, I really just kind of spun out relationally. Uh, and we would have these seasons. And she didn't do anything. Per se, and and there, it kind of would come these points where I couldn't really talk about it. Because I had so much rage inside of me that if I opened my mouth, I had no clue what would come out, but I was pretty sure it would consume both of us. And so I would have to, I would give her the cold shoulder and the best that I could do and say was like, hey, listen, I'm going through something. I can't really talk about it when I can. I promise that I will, but you're just gonna have to give me space. And, and then internally, I was conflicted. So we had this relational conflict. I was conflicted in myself. And I just didn't know who I was in my marriage, in my community, in my spheres of relational relevance, in myself. I didn't know who I was. And, uh, and so that conflict was just all together. Um, yeah, it felt like it was going to just drown me. And I didn't, and I, and I was in this kind of dark place. So, um, yeah, so it's kind of that place, you know, maybe you'll share how that experience was for you. Um, it wasn't great. Um, <laughs> so I grew up in a very segregated environment, um, you know, very homogenous, so my community was very homogenous. And, you know, I'd gone to college and lived abroad and lived in New York City. So, like, in my mind, I'd become, like, this very evolved person that eats any kind of food. So it's going to be fine to marry a black man. And, um, you know, that gives you the idea of what kind of, you know, na naivete um, that I walked into it with. And, um, yeah, it was... Um, a total surprise, which is a little embarrassing to say. And um, when we got married, um, you know, race has become very much a part of the cultural conversation, and at least for people who didn't have to have it growing up. And I think that's something that I want to acknowledge is that I didn't have to have the conversation growing up, and so I didn't. Um, race has always been a part of Patrick's life because it had to have been, right? Um, so I was very privileged in that way. But, you know, we had gone through um, some things um, early in our relationship, and then when all of these um, racially charged incidents started happening, which were many, I mean, it was like one after the other, and I saw him just recede into this place, and um, I just had no idea what to do, honestly. Um, and our conversations were pretty tense, were pretty um, short, um, it was pretty isolating, and it was just such a terrible feeling to know that there was nothing I could do to help, um, but also that I was in such a poor position to even grieve with him. I just literally couldn't. Um, I didn't have the framework. I didn't have the language. I didn't have any kind of understanding. And, um, you know, I think people make a lot of assumptions when they see that you're in an interracial marriage. And <laughs> those were all wrong when it came to me as far as what I came in knowing and not knowing. And so it was um, just incredibly humbling and really scary. Um, you know, like those were the days where the, the covenant you know, knocks on the door and is like, you know, you've committed, you're here, um, so we're going to figure this out. But it felt very daunting because I'm never not going to be from where I'm from and he's never not going to be where he's from. And, you know, 
our skin color is going to remain the same, and I don't have a lot of hope for America in our next 20 years, um, at least at that point. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where those days were, mm. kind of dark. Yeah, what happened? You were going to say what happened next? No. Oh, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> um, right, so what happened next? <laughs> Is um, this is like marriage therapy? <laughs> Just living our lives up here yeah, on this stage. Um, it's me and you, boo. <laughs> and Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, like as he was going through this and. Um, entering into his own journey, it became very clear that um, something had to happen for me. Mm -hmm. um, nothing was going to be healed between us if I didn't start looking at what was happening with me. And so there is this verse um, for all you Enneagram nines out there. It comes up a lot. Oh, wow, thanks. <laughs> um, Ephesians 5, um, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Mm -hmm. And this came up a lot, just kind of randomly in my life. And um, I feel like God was just like, I need you to sit up and take a good look around. Mm -hmm. Don't say anything. Open your eyes. Be quiet. And just take a really good look around. And um, that's what I did. In this verse, actually, I was rereading it last night, and this is actually where God tells us to walk in love and ergo walk in the light of the Lord and to no longer take part in darkness, but instead expose it. And that's where the power is, right? Um, when darkness is left unexposed, it's going to continue to fester. It's going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to become this big, scary monster that you don't know what it is or what shape it takes or how it's impacting things. But when something is in the light, I know how big it is. I know what to call it. I know how to approach it or to run away from it, whatever it is. And that's what the light of the Lord gives us, is it gives us that knowledge of what we're really looking at. And I think that's such a gift that God has given us. And one huge caveat in this is that we wouldn't be here today if we weren't both relying on the Holy Spirit to guide us through this process. Because I would not have seen and I would not have had um, the ability to engage it without the work of the Holy Spirit in my own heart. So what that looked like was, um, you know, not just reading the headlines, but reading full articles um, when things were happening, um, reading books, um, really listening to what he was saying and what others were saying. Um, because it's not just race, right? Um, people who are a different gender, people who um, have less or more money than you, people who live in different places, like this all matters. And I came in with so many assumptions that I knew, and this was such a process of God bringing in humility into my heart that I didn't know, and so I first had to ask questions. Um, and then also just exposing sin in my heart, um, sin in the world that I was scared to even call it what it was, and I think sometimes that's necessary. Um, <laughs> and then, I was like, you're about to name well, something. I like, well, I mean, you know, we're, there was, he had had experiences of racism, of segregation, of exploitation that I had never had any concept for. And so being able to say it and name it and know that that was, he is not isolated. He is not an isolated incident. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think that just made me really sad and I didn't want to acknowledge it for our world. And I still don't want to acknowledge it for our world, but I think you, we have to in order to let the light of God come in and to do the redemptive work that he's gonna do. You have to name it first and then ask for him to intervene. Um, let me see if I missed anything here. Um, yeah, and I think it was just a softening of my heart overall. Yeah. yeah. 
So for me, the process was somewhat similar, but very different. There's this um, passage uh, in Jeremiah chapter 22, uh, where the Lord is giving this, this, this condemnation, and he talks about Jehoiakim who built this, this king of Israel who built his, his palace using uh, slaves. And uh, verse 13 says that by using slaves, he literally baked injustice into the walls. Uh, and this, this picture of systemic injustice and oppression and how it doesn't just, it doesn't just stay in this isolated incident, but it kind of just takes over the whole framework of things. And so for me, like we talk about like ideas of like white supremacy or uh, majority culture, we can often resign those as a problem that like people who are identify as white uh, have, and they need to figure that out. And white supremacy only affects like white people, but it doesn't. It actually, uh, it's in the, the fabrics of like our culture, and so it gets into me as a person of color and how I perceive myself and what I call good, what I call bad, you know, and what how I even see myself. And so part of my journey was that recognition that this was not out here, but it was really in me. That's what I was scared of, right? Did I love myself? Or did I see myself as deficient? Did I love her because I saw her as somewhat better than something else? Those are real questions you have to face. And it can be scary because what if the answer is like, yes, what do I do with that? And so what the gospel does and what the gospel did for me is what it came in and I was able to see the truth of myself, that I am beloved, uh, like race, like it's a foreign concept. There are no white people and black people in the Roman Empire. These are literally words and concepts that have come in vogue in the last like 500 years, right? Now there are always... Uh, caste systems, there's always subjugation of some sort. They have their own version of white people and black people. Uh, but, but that particular concept wasn't there. And so race as this thing that meant so much in my life wasn't in the kingdom when I looked at like open the scriptures and see what the Lord had to say. And I look at like Revelation and this, this view of the end times and every tribe and tongue uh, and creed bow down before the throne. Race is not mentioned. <laughs> There are differences mentioned, because differences we acknowledge, okay, but this race wasn't this thing, and so God didn't make white people and black people, he made people. And so there was this, like, coming of myself, uh, being fully integrated as a human before God, not defined by these, like, cultural uh, systems. And so that was a major thing, and it happened, like, in taking, uh, prayer was huge, Prayer and silence and solitude before the Lord. I took my first solo retreat, uh, and I went and got in this little tiny house, uh, which for me, like most houses are tiny, but uh, <laughs> this is a real tiny house. And I hold away for like three days, and I literally put away my phone, and I read the scriptures, and I prayed, and I listened to the Lord. And in the midst of that, the, the word of the God, the voice of God just came in. And I literally have this sheet, this this, this moleskin, because of course, and, uh, and I just like... <laughs> I was like, I remember so distinctly the voice of the Lord just start whispering, this is who you are. And I have this, it was like this download and I was just like beautiful mind, like writing down like, like, like this word from the Lord of who my identity was. And it was like all together just like integrating and allowed me to stand on my own two feet. But you can get caught in that kind of utopia thing because like, yes, there isn't like white people and black people in the kingdom of God, but there are in America. And so like, how do I actually then be this person right, before God altogether whole, but also live in a culture where these concepts exist. You have to be able to navigate that road. And so what that meant was a lot of what Catherine was saying was I had to come back in, now an integrated person, and I had to be able to call things for what they were. I had to not be scared to face the truth. Um, and I had to be able to find a way to like communicate my feelings and stuff. Uh, and so we started to do that. We found an honesty that allowed us um, to just talk about what the difference was, to give each other space. And also I had to, I had to learn some grace. Like she, Catherine started her own journey um, of uh, awakening or whatever you want to call it. And, um, and there had to be grace because sometimes she'd just, like say the wrong thing or sometimes she'd ask a question that I, I was just like, come on girl, like, you know. Uh, <laughs> 
But, you know, you can't grow. Like, imagine if your kindergarten teacher was like, really, two plus two? Like, you're asking this? Like, everyone knows that. You know, like, you have to give people a chance to learn, but it does require a maturity and a grace to do that. When there's integrity, when someone's really with integrity trying to learn. And so uh, being able to move in grace towards her and give her space for her journey, and also this was really huge. Um, the gospel is both this individual and communal exercise. And so the Lord did this work in establishing who I was. But then communally, uh, we were growing like through this. But we had to then like, know what was the communal spaces and what were individual spaces. And so like her work wasn't a communal space. <laughs> like she had this journey with God that she had to go on. And honestly, like I don't even know much of the details of that because I just stayed out of it. You know, I had to because it wasn't my place. And it's likewise, I had to go on this journey that she didn't, couldn't facilitate and I didn't need her cheerleading for. I just needed to walk through that with God. And then we kind of came back together uh, at this place of unity where those conversations were still hard. Oh my gosh, so many tears, uh, so many tears. Uh, but they were like beautiful, hard fought tears because it would have been easier just to walk away, honestly. Um, but like, you know, this is a marriage that we fought for and we've gotten this thing out of the mud. Uh, and it's been altogether really beautiful what we found. And a big picture of that, like I said, like, 2016, I remember Philando Castile, uh, uh, like July 6th, it was one of the like loneliest days of my life. And I remember, I think that was a Saturday. The next day was a Sunday and was just surrounded by these people who just like were unaffected. And I was just like, nobody? Like, and I just remember being so heartbroken and so angry. And then fast forward, like, you know, uh, 2020, George Floyd uh, was murdered and, and, uh, like a week or two after, we were listening to a sermon together from uh, a church a friend of mine uh, works at. And, and anyway, it was just this, this pastor was, was giving this beautiful exhortation. And, and we were both sitting on the couch, like, bawling. But what was so beautiful is that we were bawling for completely different reasons. And, like, I was bawling because, like, it, it was just, like, so cathartic to hear people, especially a person that didn't look like me, call out like this evil for what it was. It was beautiful uh, and, and healing just to like, to kind of be seen. Um, and it was just like a release from the grief and, that I had. And then I, I let you speak for that moment, what you felt, but you know, it was just like, it was kind of a different thing for you. And, and it was just like really beautiful to have us come together and realize, gosh, this is what reconciliation looks like. It doesn't mean that we become the same people. It doesn't mean that, that Matthew became a zealot or that, you know, Simon became a tax collector, right? We still could have our personalities, even maybe a little bit of our preferences. But what had happened was that Jesus had called us out of our individual holes and into this altogether reconciled space where we're still broken and we still got a lot to learn and work, but we have grace for each other, good communication, uh, individual foundings in the Lord um, that then allows us to call things what they are uh, and engage them um, for our family and for our community. So, yeah. Yeah, I would just say that I think something that the Lord really helped me to see is not only how much it breaks his heart as a very personal thing, but it really breaks God's heart. And um, I was finally able to weep with my brother in Christ, not just my husband, and um, to know that this was an affront, an assault to him and to God's creation and to, you know, to the likelihood, uh, the um, that's not the right word, um, to those that he created. And um, it was heartbreaking for a lot of reasons um, that we knew how far we were from the kingdom of God here on earth. And um, if we want to be people that are ushering in the kingdom, then every affront to it is an affront to us individually. Um, mm, so, say it again. <laughs> I don't remember. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> 
We're working on it. She's a, I'm the preacher in the family. She's, she's, she's coming. Um, so, yeah, so a, a lot of what Patrick already mentioned, but I think a lot of that, a lot of the individual um, healing that we had to do built a communal foundation for our relationship to experience healing. So there was a common... Um, truth that we were working from, a common language, um, there was a common grace, there was a common confession, and that was the foundation because racial reconciliation is always going to be a part of our marriage. We have not arrived by any means. Or no. and, um, and we have a son, and he is black, and you know that will always be a part of our parenting is what that looks like. And so we are really just the beginning of this journey. Um, and Lord knows what is to come in our world. Um, and I just pray that our home can be a microcosm of what the Lord intends as far as unity in the spirit and the celebration of the differences under him. And that through the work of his spirit, we're able to really um, love each other where they are at and celebrate where they are at um, and not change, you know. Let's go down to... You was about to start preaching. Well, no, no, no. I was going to go down a, um, a, a stuffing versus dressing um, conversation, which was a part of early in our marriage, you know, um, for Thanksgiving, uh, if you guys know. Um, just let wounds. Yeah, <laughs> um, but, yeah, I guess I would, I would just, again, reiterate for any encouragement for anyone that feels like there is a rift, that there is a brokenness. Um, we had to start as individuals because you can't bring wholeness to another as a broken piece. Mm. And Jesus is in all of those parts. And you just have to be willing to let the light shine in into those crevices that are um, really hard for me. They were really embarrassing, really shameful, um, and just so painful also. Um, so that there's a real... Um, yeah, I, I needed the Lord's courage because, like I said, I'm a nine, so I don't like hard things, and um, I really needed him to, to help me, to guide me through it, and uh, we've had a lot of hard conversations, and I've had a lot of hard conversations with friends that I failed um, to love them well, and uh, I just am so thankful for the grace that I have been shown. Um, and for anyone who is in this and has been in the position of Patrick, um, that grace is unworldly. And I pray that we would be a people where that um, is so present. Um, because I could have been divorced, frankly, at this point. Um, but I'm not. And uh, I mean, <laughs> I don't clean, so I could have been divorced. So, so she's um, put up with me. And... Uh, yeah, I'm just so thankful because that is the work of the Lord in our relational healing. And uh, it, it allows us to be where we are today and will um, continue us forward. So uh, a question that comes to mind, and I, I think both of you said it in different ways, but when we look at the story of the, from the teaching text, right? Like Matthew never got rid of his tax collector path. Like, I think there's this, this, there's this idea of the gospel in which we take, like, the verse, we are new creation, the old is gone, the new has come, as sort of, like, an erasure. But it's like, no, like, while we are right with God, we st those, those experiences exist in the world. S Simon was still, he, he, he could not get rid of his past of being a zealot. And so my question to you guys is, you guys both mentioned before, the, before you could both come together and, and do this relational healing, there's a sort of confrontation of, like, who am I? What am I bringing to this table that is the source of this strife? And so my, my question is, how would, you, how would you encourage people to, to do that well, to, to acknowledge that thing, that, 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 that thing that they can't get rid of, but they need to confront and face in order to pursue relational healing regardless of of the source of it. How do they confront that well? Yeah, I think what I think it's impossible. Hmm. Like, I mean, I think if if you try to make this your work, you've already lost the game's up. Great. You know, like 
I can go on about this. I'll, I'll try to just keep this very concise. A part of the conflict that I was experiencing internally was expressing itself in like contempt for her. I've told stories about that. You can probably go back and find them and stuff like that. And, um, and she's a nine, so she didn't even realize what was happening. And so there are ways in which I was like, just, yeah, being contemptuous in my language, and it was clothed in, in humor, so it wasn't very obvious. It wasn't, it was, it was mean, but it didn't seem mean, you know? And, uh, and I didn't like will my way out of it. The Holy Spirit brought it to mind. And for me, it was like riding in a, in a car around Grand Army Plaza listening to a book, and someone just called it out. Uh, about contempt and that like hit me and I was like, oh gosh, that's, that's me. Mm. I've got stuff in me. And so I think the gospel is like, you know, Paul calls it like looking at a mirror yeah. dimly. And so uh, I think what happens and how we can, can make our past not our, our future is that like by yielding ourselves to the spirit, he allows us to like find wholeness despite our past. Like my mm. past is still with me. He's never gonna leave me, but like I know who I am now, mm. you know? I'm altogether um, a different person in the same old skin, um, but like, uh, yeah. So that's where I would take it. I would just say like, it's a, it's a work of the Lord. And when he moves, when we, when we find the gospel, um, I think then, we're no longer finding our identity in old things. Hmm. And so they can still exist. And I can encounter those things go forward, but I'm no longer defined by them. Hmm. Yeah. And so I think a, a final question for you guys is we're in a community here from all, all, all different walks of life, all different sides of, of the coin. And, and so as we do this as a community, what, what, what do you think the role of, of prayer is for us as we try to exist and live together as a new family of God with, with Simons and Matthews and all other, all other sorts? What, what, what would be the role for prayer for us as a community as we try to navigate and try to be this new family? Um, I mean, I think prayer is just the foundation of our relationship with God. So if we're going to invite God into this work, it's going to be through prayer. Um, and I think if we gauge it as a community that gives space for each of us to be whole individuals contributing mm. to the whole um, into this common love language back to the Lord. Um, so... Yeah, and I, I think, again, in prayer, that comes that also angle of respecting each person's story and individuality. And um, I'm sure you've been next to someone and be like, oh, they pray weird, you know? And it's just like, um, I think there's a lot of beauty in that um, to be around a lot of differences because um, each of those differences reflect part of our very big God. And um, it's very small-minded to think that the way we do something is how God ultimately designed it to be. Um, so I think through the diversity of people, we see the diversity of God. Um, but yeah, I, I just think it has to be the bedrock for it to invite God into mm -hmm. it and to acknowledge that we need him in it. Yeah, and I would just add like prayer, not just as a function of asking, um, mm, yeah. but listening, like it's a conversation. And so, like I said, like a lot of the healing, how functionally, practically, the gospel entered this conflict in me was through listening, like shutting out the noise, finding some time away, retreating from the busyness, and cutting off the phone, and just listening to the Lord. And there is a still small voice, you know? I think if we're all honest, we've, we've heard at least that part, you know, even if it's like, don't touch that. Uh, we've, we've heard that still small voice, but it has so much more to say, and it doesn't have to stay a whisper. But it is a muscle. It is something that you have to train. Like how mm -hmm. to like, listen, that's why we're having that thing. Uh, May 4th. Uh, you can hear the voice of God. Uh, to train those muscles. To say, how do we actually listen to the word of God? Because uh, if it's true that we have a God and that he is benevolent and that he is working to bring us wholeness, then it must be true that he is communicating to us, that he is finding a way to call us forward, right? Um, 
And so then, if we're not hearing, then maybe it could be that we're not listening. Mm-hmm. And so I would just say, yeah, like listening and, and also lastly, just communing, like praying for one another is, um, is so huge. Listening and asking the Lord on each other's behalf um, can be all the difference. Yeah. Guys, before I let you go, any final, any final words of encouragement or... You know, um, (laughs) don't break spades, you know? (laughs) Guys, thank you. Can you guys do me a favor and stand with me? You know, um, there's, when, when Patrick was talking about, you know, training ourselves to listen and hear God, part, part of, part of the, the reason prayer is oriented around listening is the fact that we all come to God with our, with our own narratives, our own stories, our own predispositions and predilections, and you can name it. And part of the listening aspect of prayer is to invite God to give his perspectives on our narrative, to give his insight into the story of our lives. And so what we want to do in this moment here is is, is be a two-part movement of response. First, we're going to spend some time listening. All of us, in one, one shape or another, have relational conflict. It might be here in this body. It might be at home. It might be the, just the general conflict that that's just it comes with being human. But in order for us to begin moving towards each other without some sort of erasure of ourselves or the false senses of unity, we have to then hear what God is saying to us about us. And I think that is part of the genius of Jesus inviting Matthew and Simon to follow him. Because in that, they both had, they were both, no, they both, both weren't the teacher. They were the students. And so with all their opinions they might have had about each other, about the world, about how, what the future of Israel should have looked like, it all didn't matter in front of Jesus. Because he had to give perspective, a new perspective on their story so that they can begin to bridge that gap. And I think the same is required for us. And so here's what we're going to do. The, the band's going to play behind, maybe worship a little bit. But we're going to take some time, silence, just listening to the still small voice of God and listen with those conflicts in mind. God, what are you saying about my story? What are you saying about the conflicts I'm experiencing? What are you saying about who I am and who that person is and who you're trying to make us? And then... We'll give some time for that. Then the second movement will be a time to pray for one another. There's a sense in in, in Paul's letters where he says, you know, we we hold up one another's burdens, that we we, we pray and we act as if your sufferings are my sufferings and my pains are your pains and your joys are my joys and your victories are my victories and that we're so bound together in the mystical body of Christ that when one thing happens to one part of the body, the other part feels it. And so part of the way to cultivate that, that orientation, that attitude towards living is through praying for one another. And so I'm going to come back up and lead us in a time of, of just instructing you guys how to pray for one another so that this idea of like coming together and the healing of relationships doesn't stay some theoretical thing. I think that's part of what we're facing as a culture is everyone... Our responses to sort of tensions is either to post about it, read an article, pick up a new podcast. And Jesus has always been more action-oriented than that. He has always invited us to actually go to the person, to lay hands on the person, to ask for forgiveness, to confess our sins. And so the response can't just stay up here. We have to then begin to practice this out. If we're going to experience the relational healing we need, we need to be a kind of people praying and seeking God together. And in these moments of strife and tension, coming to the Lord together, acknowledging who we truly are, seeing God for who he truly is, 
and then seeing each other for who he's made us to be. And so let's take the next few minutes. I encourage you, open up your hands. If you need to kneel, kneel. If you need to sit down, sit down. If you need to come up here and lay on a rug and not to be performative, but you just need to get before God and that's the only way you're going to hear his voice, then you need to do just that. I encourage you to make yourself a little uncomfortable because relational healing, by definition, is uncomfortable. And so with that said, let me open this up in prayer and we'll take some time for silence and then I'll lead us in some prayer together. Father, your vision of the kingdom is a vision of a people together from all different walks of life with, with all the baggage that comes with our past, God, with all the tension as a result, God. And God, I'm so thankful that coming to you doesn't mean we have to ignore it or pretend like it's not there or push it under a rug, but you call us to confront and name, and you put us in proximity to people that we should never know according to worldly standards. You call us outside of our the boxes we have placed ourselves in. You call us to confront the other in each other. But we can only do that, God, until we see ourselves for who we really are and allow us to, you to speak into our story. And once we begin to do that confrontation with you, then we can begin to move towards one another. And so we give ourselves over to silence, God, to hear your voice and to ready ourselves for your movement. In Christ's name. isn't in the fire, he's not in the thunder, or the earthquake, or the whirlwind, he's, he's in the still small voice, as Patrick said, and so my encouragement to you is to hold on to what God was speaking to you in this time, even if it's challenging and it hurt a bit, even if it's going to require something of you you think is impossible for you. Patrick made a great point. It is impossible for you, but for the grace of God and the power of the Spirit. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to pray for one another. And so you're in rows together. My encouragement is to turn to someone. First, ask their name. Maybe five seconds about their story. You can share as much as you want. You can just give your name. And if you don't feel like sharing, you don't have to. And then you're going to spend some time praying for one another. And the goal of this is to see each other as God sees us. To actually look, look into someone's face. You know, I, it's ironic being in a city like New York. It's 8 million people. And how often do we, like, look in the face of the other? And in a way that we're acknowledging them as, as someone worthy of dignity and the grace of God, as someone I'm responsible for, because not only do I share a common humanity with them, but they, I, they are too beloved of God. And so, take the next few minutes to pray for one another. If you feel like God is putting a word on your heart for someone, share it with them. Don't, don't hold back. If you feel like there's, there's, there's space for, to, to ask, to, space for forgiveness and, and confession for one another, then don't hold back. And then if you feel like, man, I, I, after I pray with someone, I, I still need like, someone to pray and walk with me, our prayer team will be available. As long as you need. Even, even when we do like our soft close of the service and you know, we, we dismiss parents who grab kids. And if you need prayer, that's, they're going to be here for that. And so, why don't you stand to your feet? And here's my encouragement. As best you can, given where you're sitting, maybe turn to someone you don't know. Maybe someone who's a stranger. 
and pray for them. And before you open your mouth and say anything, say, God, give me the words you have for them. And be open to the Spirit says to you. Let's pray.